All right, well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, and uh, we're going to be in, uh, begin there, verse 29, uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, and we're uh, going to start there at verse number 29. And it's a continuation of thought because uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is one of the longer uh, chapters in the New Testament. And we've looked at two other messages prior uh, talking about resurrection. And uh, so if you'll uh, find your place there either in your Bible on your device. 1 Corinthians 15 beginning with verse number 29. The Bible says there, Otherwise what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beast, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial, or earthly, is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory, but uh, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And as it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for uh, this record of your heart and your ways. We pray that you'll speak to us now. And I pray that uh, we'll find truth and hope and encouragement in your word. And we commit ourselves now to you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a writer uh, named Paul David Tripp that maybe uh, you're familiar with. The saying of his sticks with me. He says, we're between the already and the not yet. He says, we're between the already and the not yet. And I think about the not yet part of that sometimes as being... Uh, what life is like, you know, what your life is like and mine is characterized sometimes by a struggle, sometimes by discouragement, disappointment. Of course, you know, every day is not a bad day, 
But there's enough in life to give us the idea that, that, that uh, whatever God's promises to us, they're not yet fulfilled. We have hope and we have joy, and yet at the same time we have loss, right? We experience struggles. You know, we lose uh, family members and people that we care for, and we're constantly adjusting to that, and we're experiencing disappointment. So we're definitely experiencing the not yet right now. But there is an already in the sense that when we look at truth like this in Scripture, we know that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us an enduring hope. I love how the writer puts it in Hebrews when he, he says, we have this hope as an anchor to our soul. He says, we have this hope as an anchor to our soul, both sure and steadfast, he says, in which passes beyond the veil. And he's talking about the hope that Jesus accomplished by giving himself for us as an atoning sacrifice for sin, being buried and then being raised from the dead. And when he was raised from the dead, the Bible says he accomplished what he had set out to do in laying down his life in, on the cross. And he said on the cross, you remember, it's finished, it's accomplished. But then three days later, the evidence was that Jesus came out of the grave. And we've seen uh, already in the, this cha- chapter in 1 Corinthians that the Bible says he was seen by over 500 people at one time. He, uh, the people that sat down and put the scripture in front of us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament and the epistles and the gospels were eyewitnesses of what happened to Jesus and Jesus' resurrection. And so, you know, Paul has proclaimed this gospel to the people at Corinth, and yet he finds out later on that some in Corinth are saying, not only is Jesus not bodily resurrected, but there is no resurrection. No one is resurrected. And so we would call that heresy, right? We would say that's departure in some unacceptable fashion from what the gospel really is. If you don't have a resurrection, you don't have a gospel. If we don't have an, a living Jesus, physically, visibly, raised, seen, attested to, then we don't have any hope. And, and so that's, he gives us a long defense in chapter 15 because he says, I can't pass by this false idea that's taken root at least in some segment of your congregation and not address this and say, why is it that we can't... We can't uh, leave that idea standing. And so we're going to get back into this idea of what, why it's so critical to our faith that we believe that Jesus Christ is resurrected and alive. In part, when we read this chapter, it should teach us humility. That's what, when you read it, what you find out is that he's going to say to them that there are all kinds of things that you don't know. I'm going to point some of them out to you. And it should say to us, okay, the same thing is true about what happens to a person once they're placed into the grave. What ultimately is out there in the future for them. He says there are all sorts of things that you could observe and say, okay, humility leads me to confess I don't know everything. And he's going to say the same thing is true about the resurrection of the dead. So it should teach us humility. And once we admit that God exists, we are saying there is someone in the universe who is a uniquely different person than me. When we say God exists, we're acknowledging that there is someone who could conceivably raise the dead. 
We're admitting there's someone who set everything in motion and who is creator and who is infinite. And so, again, that is humbling. It should be to a person who's rational and thinking things through to say there's a person, there is a unique being, and that's the person that we sing about and we worship and we interrupt ourselves for week after week to uh, come before him and hopefully day after day. But when we think about what Jesus has said or what Paul says here about Jesus and resurrection, it opens our eyes to uh, uh, hopefully be a people who have hope. You know, what, what I hope happens as a result of thinking about this is that we continue with hope and we continue with uh, uh, joy and purpose. And as they were, so will we be witnesses of this resurrection. Witnesses, people who say this is what's transformed us. So as we look at this passage, what we see in uh, thinking about the resurrection is first he talks about the absurdity of uh, rejecting resurrection. He says it's absurd to reject uh, resurrection. And he gives us here uh, several ways that to reject resurrection is inconsistent. One, he says, it's inconsistent with your dubious practice of baptism by proxy. I read one commentator that that's what he's describing in this verse when he says, otherwise, why do you baptize people uh, on behalf of those who are dead? We're like, what? Who does that? Well, some people do that today. They baptize on behalf of the dead. But he, I don't think what we should read into that is that he's affirming that He's just saying, if there's no resurrection, why are you doing this absurd thing? Why do you baptize by proxy if, in fact, that person's body is never going to be reanimated anyway? And so he says, it's even inconsistent with this weird thing that you're doing, (laughs) you know, baptizing by proxy. So he, he says, if there's no resurrection, why do you do that? But also, he says, it's inconsistent with the risk that the apostles incurred. He says, we die daily. In essence, uh, Christianity in the first century was an illicit religion. So to go and proclaim that Jesus was resurrected was illegal. What do we know about the Apostle Paul's own history? Is that part of his story of how he came to faith in Christ is that initially he was going from place to place uh, causing Christians to be arrested. They were incarcerated and threatened with death and sometimes delivered to death. And so he says, uh, that I know for certain this happens in, our, in their culture. He says, why will we risk our life and put our life at risk if there's no resurrection? Who would do that? Who would uh, go around and he talks about an experience at Ephesus and describes wild beasts which we uh, would say probably it's a metaphor for hateful enemies. Uh, you remember at one point that a group of Christians were dragged into the uh, Colosseum at Ephesus because they threatened, uh, to, uh, in the view of the locals, to overthrow a local goddess, Diana of the Ephesians. You remember that in Acts, that everybody gathers and for hours they shout out, Great is Diana! of the Ephesians, and Paul stays out of the arena, but it's like the concept is these people are being threatened uh, in a riot, and everywhere they went, how many times was Paul incarcerated? 
spent uh, the end of his life up until the point that tradition says he was beheaded on, on account of his testimony for Christ in jail again and again. Stoned and left for dead, we know, in places in the book of Acts as we read the account. Shipwrecked. In peril, he talks about in 2 Corinthians, all the ways that they risk their life. Why risk your life if there's no resurrection of the dead? Why risk their life if there's no, uh, if Jesus isn't really resurrected? That's what he's saying. Why would we do that? Why would we put our life in jeopardy every moment? So it would be inconsistent if there's no real resurrection. It's inconsistent with the moral assumptions that they lived by. He says, the, the assumption that we live by is that I, the investment from my life matters because Jesus is alive. The reason I'm willing to, uh, to live for him in this temporary world is because I believe with all my heart he is alive, that he's raised and that he can transform any person's life. And he, uh, at first it looks like he quotes the Epicurean philosophy I was reading. It's actually a quote from... The Old Testament book of Isaiah here, where he says he's, the people there had been under God's judgment, and they said, well, we might as well eat, drink, and uh, be merry, because tomorrow we're, we die. But that was the Epicurean philosophy in the first century as well. It's like, if there is no resurrection, if there is no righteous judgment, if only in this life we're living for some religious idea, he says, we might as well reject that, not put our energy into it, and do whatever we want to. It would, that would be the sensible thing to do. But he says, no, it's inconsistent with our conviction. We live this way because we believe that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. It's inconsistent, he, he says here, to be influenced by scoffers. I like the translation of the Bible, the ISV. In some ways, it treats uh, Scripture. Here it translates verse 33. Wicked friends lead to evil ends. Wicked friends lead to evil ends. He says, be careful who you're listening to. Be careful who you're listening to. One of the things I note sometimes about the arguments that people make against or for faith is that a lot of people are being informed by comments on social media and not by reading scripture, not by reading thoughtful sources. And it's like we're dependent on someone who's a scoffer and a cynic to inform our own heart rather than uh, being serious and thoughtful and uh, re reading people who, I, I don't know, like people for me who influenced me early on were people like C.S. Lewis. His book, Mere Christianity, first Christian book I ever read was Mere Christianity. And even though some of the illustrations are sort of dated, it's, it's also a very thoughtful treatment of Christian truth and reality. So reading thoughtfully, being careful who it is that speaks into our life and influences our thoughts about what this historic truth of Christianity really uh, means and says is vital. He says it's inconsistent with the Christian confession to say that there's no resurrection. You can't say there's no resurrection and be an authentic Christian. Uh, the scriptures, look at verse 34 in the passage here. Awake to righteousness, he says, do not sin, for some of you do not have the knowledge of God. 
He's, he's saying, even though you're a part of this congregation, you gather with these people routinely, the fact that you've set aside the reality of the resurrection of Jesus and others excludes you from being able to be really considered a Christian. A Christian is a person who embraces the truth that the disciples described and believed and communicated. He says, if you don't commit to that, you're not really even a follower of Jesus. You're something else. So we see that to begin with. He says, these are all the ways it's inconsistent. It's absurd to reject resurrection. But then secondly, in this passage, beginning in verse 35, we get analogies of resurrection. He shows us several illustrations that bring home the truth that it ought to be humbling to us to say there's no such thing as resurrection. He says, if you think about these things very carefully, you'll see there's a lot that you don't know that uh, if, you, if you commit to this, you'll, uh, you'll be wise. So he first gives the analogy here of planting and harvesting. And it was hard to conceive, and it is, if you've been to the... Uh, graveside of family members or memorial services, it's hard to conceive that, that, or if you've ever seen a person pass away, if you've ever been at the bedside of someone when their spirit leaves their body and that body becomes uh, a sh- uh, the shell, it's, it becomes very obvious that it was the tent they lived in, but the thing that animated it and gave it life isn't there anymore. If you've experienced that, it's hard to think that this, these elements are going to some, someday walk around again, right? Any thinking person would be, that's a big, big thing to swallow. And to think that the finality of death could be reversed. But he answers their uh, challenge here with a strong rebuke. In verse uh, 36, look at what he says there. Foolish one. Who else said that? Do you remember like last week we talked about this, Jesus said that to the Emmaus disciples. He said, oh foolish ones and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus said the exact same thing about the exact same issue, resurrection. He says, foolish one, slow to believe all that, the, he says the prophets have already spoken to the reality of resurrection in, in the uh, past. And so you get the same uh, rebuke here from Paul to these uh, people in, in Corinth, to the, those who were in error. And he answers them with an illustration from agronomy. Don't be too impressed. I learned the word agronomy from Jerry Clower. Anybody remember Jerry Clower back in the day? A fertilizer salesman. But it, he, he takes them to this the idea of uh, planting, sowing, and it's interesting to think about the first person, I guess they observed and saw that seeds fell into the ground and as a seed fell, something came up. But it's interesting to think about the first people that sort of industrialized that or commercialized it and said, you know what, we can take this single solitary seed, a kernel of corn or some of you may plant. I know some of you keep gardens and so you, you plant stuff and what do you expect to come out? Well, it's going to be the same thing, but a lot more of it. And he says, you're already practicing a principle here where you put something in the ground. Does it stay there? No, not in their experience. When they put it in the ground, something else came out and a miracle occurred. 
He said, you already witnessed this in reality. You're saying it can't happen, it's already happening. Jesus himself said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone, but if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Who is he speaking about there? Himself. He said, I'm that grain of wheat. I'm going to be put into the ground and die. But he says, if it, when it comes out, it brings forth much fruit. Who is that? Even some of us, right, that are in this room today. We're the ones that are a reflection of the truth that he taught. That there's a mystery involved that we see all the time. But when we try to apply it to a spiritual reality, we go, no, no, no. We, we can't believe that. Why? It's an it's a observable uh, occurrence already. There's a, I wrote, read a book, like some of you, I got COVID a couple, well, when was it? Not last year, but the year before, whenever it first started. And uh, I was really sick for a while, and uh, I know some of you have been through that. I was reading um, at night when I couldn't sleep, I was reading Annie Dillard, because I thought, surely this will put me to sleep, <laughs> reading Annie Dillard. But uh, not really. She's a fascinating writer, but she's one of those writers that you have to be committed to. Uh, but I found a lot of comfort in reading some of the things that she had written uh, during the time that I was convalescing. She um, says in her book, A Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, which is maybe uh, the, one of the books that she's best known for. She says, I'm sitting under Sycamore by Tinker Creek, but under me, directly under the weight of my body on the grass, are creatures just as real in the top inch of soil. Biologists found an average of 1,356 living creatures in each square foot. Isn't that interesting? You know, we think I'm real, but if you are sitting on the ground outside, biologists say there's all kinds of real stuff right underneath you that uh, would stagger your imagination, most of it microscopic. But it's unseen but real, right? So just because something is invisible to you or inconceivable to you does not mean it's not real. And that's what he means here. He says a uh, seed that falls into the ground is an illustration of the fact that we ought to be humbled by what we don't know and if Jesus says it, we ought to commit to it as if it's true because he, he was raised and gave evidence of resurrection. And that's the testimony of the apostles. But then he secondly gives an analogy from the species. He says, even among the different species, there's an incredible, unpredictable variety of forms. Humans are different than animals, he says, in their body, right? We're different. We're bipeds. Like we, our grandbaby was up, uh, with us this weekend. He is now crawling, which now changes the whole parenting dynamic, right, for my son. They're, they uh, have to be much more alert and on top of things. But eventually, if it follows the natural course of things, he's going to stand up on two feet, and then it really gets real, right? But we, we're made unique. Humans have a body that's unique. And then animals have uh, bodies that are suited to what animals do, you know. And he says the same thing with birds. And, and the point of his illustration is when you look around you, there is already evidence of God's miraculous capacity to shape and fashion bodies and to make them uh, unique and different. And, and so he says, why would we halt 
at the idea that there are bodies that are going to uh, exist that we don't yet have a sense of, or not fully anyway, even though the Bible tells us quite a lot about those bodies. Then he uses the analogy from the heavens and from heavenly creatures. And he talks first about the idea of celestial bodies. And I think here he's talking about, for example, seraphim. Do you remember in um, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled, filled the temple. And he says, Around his throne were uh, creatures that flew, and they had wings and eyes, and they cried out, Holy, holy. But he's describing something that he could, fit, he could see a body that a creature inhabited whose sole purpose in being created was to give God glory. Is it, have you ever seen anything like that? A creature with multiple wings and eyeballs? And No. I mean, I haven't. But the Bible says, and what he's referring to is the idea that those beings exist in God's world, where God is, where his throne is. And he, he says also, when you look around outside at night, you know, the stars, the, the, we, we see moons, right, that orbit this earth that we live on. The earth itself is an incredible marvel in, in the sense of how it's placed and what it's like and the fact that God didn't have to, but he gives us seasons. And, and then we look out into space and we've, we are orbiting a sun that God created to be perfect, to give us light and heat and the, all the things we experience. And then beyond that, we see the galaxies and the universe and he says there are varieties of heavenly bodies. And the point that he makes, I believe, is that sometimes unbelief is just a willful limiting of a spiritual imagination. That's what unbelief really is. It's a willful limiting of our spiritual imagination. Because if we just open our eyes, we would see the wonder of God's creation. I'll, Angie Cheeks tells me some. Sometimes that thing, I'll post a picture of the sky over our neighborhood, which never seem, uh, stops astounding me, the different ways it looks at different times. And she's like, just look up, right? Exactly. Look up. And I think that's what he's saying to them. How is it that you've missed out on the glory of God all around you in the different manifestations of it, of things that you can currently evaluate and observe and see. And as you're saying that there's no resurrection, why would you say that? We have every reason to believe that God is infinite in his creative acumen and his power. You already have every reason to think that. And that's what he, he says in his passage to us. But then the last part of this is the transforming reality of resurrection. Because he, he gives here six principles that you see in transformation that we'll, we'll look at quickly as we finish up. For, he says that the transforming power of reality is that it goes from corruption to in, uh, incorruption. So once the body is raised, its perishing days are over. There's no more death, the Bible says, uh, once we're raised. The, uh, it's interesting. Do you realize that you are immortal now? You're immortal. I'm immortal. 
Because once we have a body, the Bible says it's eternal. It is going to exist forever and ever. The question is, what are we doing with that immortality? What are we doing with it? We've already been given it, in, in essence. And it's true of everybody. And, and what God really, uh, His desire for us is to be worshipers now in the bodies that we have. Because if we know Him, we'll be worshipers forever and ever. But immortality is the reality for everybody once you're born. You're eternal. But he says, people, when we uh, are we're going to pass from corruption to incorruption, uh, the idea that de- degradation won't ever happen again, that's the next thought, from dishonor to glory in verse 43. From dishonor to glory, that's the transition that happens because of resurrection. What is sown is degraded. It was perhaps broken and frail and unimpressive, and now it's raised powerful. I think about my, some of my family members. My uncle David was a mechanic. He had forearms like Popeye. I mean, he was one of the most, uh, the strongest people. I, I mean, I couldn't imagine crossing him. He was an intimidating presence. But when my uncle David passed away, he was on a walker and carrying an oxygen tank. And it's a dirty trick that life plays on people. You know, the fact that as we get older, if we get older, we tend to de- uh, degrade. And, and our bodies tend to become weak and less impressive. But the Bible says it's raised powerful. The body that's raised is going to be completely different. Listen to how Paul puts it in Philippians. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which even He, he is able even to subdue all things to Himself. He says, We see this in Jesus, which is the next uh, part of the transition that we see from resurrection, from weakness to power. Think about Jesus. He was, he was entombed, but when he was placed into that tomb, what was the body that went into that tomb like? What did he experience up until his death, once he was arrested? The Bible says blindfold, blindfolded, beaten, spat upon, cursed, his beard uh, pulled out, bruised, bloodied. Think about the body that was... Uh, lovingly placed into that tomb, beaten, pierced, and lacerated, dehydrated, showing evidences of shock and trauma. That's the body that Jesus had that was laid into a tomb. But think about what John says on Patmos. Do you remember the vision in Revelation chapter number uh, 1? This is how he describes the Jesus that he encountered. The one that was sown in weakness... He says, was raised in power. This was his body. He, said, he says, he was dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his hand on me and said, Be not afraid, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and look, I am alive forever and ever. 
And I hold the keys to death and Hades. The person here is John, we believe, the son of Zebedee, Jesus' comrade, friend. You know, someone that had spent time with Jesus. But when he sees him resurrected, we know he's speaking in part metaphorically. But he gives this description that is mind-blowing. And he says, this was the one that went into the tomb bruised and bloodied and beaten. That he, he, he came out glorified and powerful. Then from natural to spiritual. Jesus' conversation uh, with Nicodemus. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And he says, uh, consequently, don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And, and I think that's what he's talking about in this part of this passage, the spiritual man, the natural man. You've got to become a spiritual person. And that happens as we place our faith in Christ and we are made alive by Christ. He describes the idea of, like, what does the Bible say? How did God create people? What did he do in Genesis? He formed them from the dust of the ground. He breathed into them the breath of life. The Bible says God made man, people, humans out of nothing. He took nothing spoken into existence, formed those elements into a person and made them a living being. And the Bible says that image of God is marred by sin. And, and what Jesus does in the new birth is to take that broken, fallen, alienated person and breathe into them the breath of life. And that, I believe, is what he describes here when he describes the man, the first man, Adam. The second man is Jesus, the Lord from heaven who said this to us, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man. So if someone came from heaven and someone described to us what life really meant, that would be a person we should listen to. And Jesus says, that's exactly who I am. I'm the one who came from heaven and I'm describing to you what I know. And then the disciples experienced Christ and described to us what they saw so Paul says, knock it off. Knock it off. Stop uh, rejecting the reality of resurrection because it is consequential to the good news as a historic event. He says resurrection is not something we can lay aside. It confirms God's power at work in Jesus' uh, crucifixion to forgive sin and to conquer death. And, and he said himself, I am the resurrection and the life and whoever lives and believes it will never die, believes in me will never die. And so the resurrection reminds us that life transcends our limited current experience. We're limited, and sometimes we fail to see what should be obvious and what's been reported to us, in which the writers of Scripture, the apostles, said we must believe. It reminds us, too, that suffering is pur purposeful, we talked about being between the already and the not yet, and the not yet involves suffering. Adrian Rogers says, Christianity is not the subtraction of problems from life. It is the addition of power to meet those problems. That's why it's important that we follow Christ and that we experience his life is because we get a meaning that's transcendent and, and that gives us the capacity for hope. It reminds us that God faced and conquered our greatest challenge in that menacing enemy of death. So that Jesus says, those who live and believe in me will never die. He says, even though uh, 
we, we pass away, we'll be raised to life, the life that he intended for us to have all along, so we can live with him and rest in him with hope and purpose and joy, just like those early disciples did. And we can live as witnesses to his resurrection. We're going to have a time of commitment now as uh, we sing and close in our service out. And always this is a, a opportunity, as it says, to respond to God. We hear from God uh, through his word and by his spirit. And now is an opportunity for us to respond. So would you stand with me? We're going to pray. If there is a way that uh, I can assist you during this uh, time of our service, I'll be happy to. Or if you have, have questions afterward, uh, please approach me or someone you know and trust, and we'll be happy to, um, to help you. God, we're so grateful for the Bible and how it shows us that uh, there are realities to uh, connect our truth, our hope to. There's truth that is timeless that people have uh, reported as eyewitnesses that we affirm. And because of that, we worship. And I pray today that you'll use this time in our lives to uh, deepen us or to draw us to yourself. God, thank you that your word says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be rescued, will be saved. And so we pray today that you'll help us just to cry out, to acknowledge our need and to trust in this one who's resurrected in power. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.